and welcome to The Devil's Party. I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD, culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week we are beginning, properly in earnest, the revelation of John, the book of revelations. It doesn't really have a proper title, whatever you want to call it, uh, is fine with me. The book that brought you such classics as Left Behind, uh, Manhunter. Um, when I was a kid, we used to watch the movie Omega Code a lot. <laughs> <laughs> which was a very bad movie starring Michael York as this kind of general who is bringing about the end of the world. And at the end of the movie, the devil pops out of his head. Um, the Book of Revelation, it is an immensely influential work of art. It is also perhaps one of the most badly read works of art in literature's history and with some really awful consequences because of that. Um, so my goal is to kind of walk us through this text, um, put it in its historical context, but also um, I don't want to dismiss the bad readings of it. In fact, I kind of want to celebrate them Um I am, after all, interested in literature. I'm interested in the afterlife of literature. So what I don't want to do is discount all these awful movies and nightmares this text has given us, but actually sort of revel in them and celebrate them. Um, but okay, so this week I'm going to kind of introduce this text um, in very specific ways. I want to think about its genre. I want to think about its author. I want to think about its dating, its theology, and the way its sort of structure and plot and literary features work. And that'll give us a kind of framework going forward as we begin to read this truly bonkers work of art. So what is this thing? Well, uh, it's an apocalypse. Um, in fact, it tells you so right off the top. It uses the word in Greek that uh, is apocalypse. Um, as I said last time, it literally just means disclosure, a revelation. It literally means an unveiling, a removal of a physical veil. Um, apocalypse is a genre we understand kind of retroactively, um, but it definitely has its own uh, taxonomic features. Um, sometimes scholars like to, uh, make a distinction between a prophetic text and apocalyptic text. This text doesn't do that. In fact, it very specifically calls itself at various moments a prophecy. If you want to make that distinction, the way to think about it is an apocalypse thinks about the end times and has that end times give meaning to the present, whereas a prophecy thinks about the present and therefore speculates about things that will happen next. Um, if that is a useful distinction for you, go ahead and use it, but um, it is not one that really obtains here. This text, as it explicitly says, in is interested in what was, what is, and what will be. Um, it's a vision text, and even though... It is uniquely positioned in what we call the New Testament, the body of Christian literature uh, that sort of tells the story of Christ and the immediate aftermath of that life. It is absolutely not unique in the literature of the period, nor indeed is it the only Christianized apocalypse or a Christianized vision text. Um, there are, for example... Uh, 
the book of Enoch gets kind of edited, even though it has very Jewish roots, gets re-edited, especially Second Enoch, into being a Christian text. The Shepherd of Hermas is a very Christian apocalypse. There's a bunch of pseudonymous ones, that is to say, um, texts that are written borrowing a famous Christian's name, even though they definitely didn't write them, like the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Paul. There's Apocalypses of Adam. There's Apocalypses of Abraham. Um... And these exist within as sort of a subset of vision texts that are actually quite familiar to, um, for example, the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible contains several such texts. Um, Isaiah is a vision text, a book of prophecy. Uh, And particularly when we talk about uh, the revelation of John, uh, we need to think a lot about Ezekiel and particularly Daniel. These are texts, in the case of Isaiah and Ezekiel, major prophets um, who are writing in moments of incredible persecution of the Jewish people and are imagining the ways that God will work a salvation from those moments of persecution. Um, And that tells us quite a lot, actually, about what an apocalypse is. They're very frequently texts written by a minoritized population um, or a population that imagines itself to be minoritized and persecuted and therefore resort quite frequently to heavily coded language to conceal or at least obfuscate the um, quite pointed and quite revolutionary messages they contain. The revelation of John is going to go hard on on the power structures of its age, particularly Rome uh, and specific figures of that age, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, And it does so under a bit of a cloud of obfuscation. Um, The apocalypse of John, the revelation of John, is actually quite unique in that... It uh, is written by a guy named John. Uh, He tells us so. He tells us so many times. Um, So that might bring us into the next thing I want to talk about, which is who is this guy? Who wrote this? Well, he tells us so that his name is John four times, actually, three of them right off the jump here. Um, he says, "I'm hey, guys, it's John. <laughs> uh, he's living on Patmos. Uh, we find out that he seems to be there under the cloud of some persecution. Uh, at first, this was always understood to mean that he has been formally exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos is off the coast of Asia Minor, off the coast of present-day Turkey. Uh, very small. Um, we are. It's less. It's not actually formally clear in the text if he is there because he has to be, if he's in hiding, or what's going on. Um, so he's just called usually John of Patmos. Um, the question we have to wrestle with is, is this John, John the son of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the beloved disciple of Christ? Um, this is a person we've been dealing with over on the Patreon for a very long time. The figure who is understood to be the author of the Gospel of John and the Letters of John, um, and therefore the kind of figurehead, the leader of the Johannine community. Johannine just means, you know, of John, right? Um, 
the Yonin community seems to have been indeed operating out of Asia Minor. It seems to have been centered in the neighborhood of these so-called seven churches that he's addressing this letter to, which are centered around the political and commercial capital in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a major Christian uh, site of operation. Paul uh, seems to have founded some, or at least spoken to, <laughs> it's Paul. Uh, for those of you who are just beginning to listen to this podcast, you'll quickly learn about my deep contempt for the so-called Apostle Paul. <laughs> uh, but he he traveled there, he wrote letters there. Um, the other seven churches here only one other of them is ever mentioned in anywhere else in the New Testament. The other five are completely new listings here, and we don't have a lot of record of them. But we we know about them from, like, contemporary archaeology. They're all really close to each other. They're kind of like a day's travel from each other. Um, but is this the Apostle Paul? Well, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while, and if you haven't been, go check out the Patreon, we identified certain features about the Johannine community and its tendencies. Uh, almost none of them <laughs> are actually present here. I'm about to walk that back in a lot of ways. But for example, um, the Gospel of John we quickly identified as being the gospel of love. It was obsessed with the idea of love. Love one another. Uh, there is nothing greater a person can do than lay down their life for their friend, etc., etc. It was obsessed with this idea. Um, in fact, John, the, the disciple, was known um, as a catchphrase to constantly be saying, little children love one another. The word love never even appears once in the book of Revelations. Similarly, the Gospel of John was obsessed with the importance of belief to a degree we found almost exhausting in our analysis. Um, almost all of the kind of obsession with Christian ethics that interests the synoptic Gospels of Mark, Luke, and Matthew almost entirely disappears in the Gospel of John and becomes obsessed with the idea of believing in Christ. The word believe does not occur in the Revelation of John either. Um, the other thing that is marks this Gospel as incredibly different from, not this Gospel, this, this book, the Revelation of John, uh, that marks it as different from the Gospel of John is its style. The Gospel of John is written in, and you'll quickly learn, I don't know Greek, um, but the Gospel of John is written in a very sophisticated, elegant Greek that is usually perceptible in its translation. It is um, engaged in a rather high-minded style, um, whereas <laughs> the Revelation of John is apparently in Greek so bad that the scholar uh, Bart Ehrman used to give an assignment to his students where he would make them circle all the mistakes in its Greek uh, in the first 200 words. Um, one of the other big reasons to doubt this is by the Apostle John, the beloved John, um, is that the apostles appear in the text and the author, the the witness who is writing this down, isn't one of them. He's looking at them. Now, in a text that's full of this kind of psychedelic surrealism, that's not impossible, but it is a little odd, right? <laughs> like, if you were writing about your friends, 
the well, not all eleven, notable exception. Uh, although they did end up replacing Judas. Um, but if you were writing about your friends, you wouldn't write about them as like these distant figures, and that similarly, nor would you write about yourself perhaps as this distant figure. And if you were the beloved of Christ, is this how you would describe him? Is kind of an interesting question we're going to be wrestling with. So that's the case against identifying this as the Apostle John. But there are some reasons to identify it with um, the Johannine community and possibly even the Apostle John. One of them is geography, right? Uh, as I said, the Johannine community was known to be operating in Turkey. The tomb of John the Beloved is in Ephesus. In fact, there are two tombs, uh, two Johns in Ephesus. So one of them could be this John of Patmos. Um, it is notable, by the way, <laughs> he calls himself John four times. One of the major features of the author of the Gospel of John is he never names himself, nor indeed does he ever name John, uh, the, the apostle. So this is actually, naming himself John is actually an argument against it being John <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> um, but as much as I just said, like, it doesn't use the idea of love or believe, it does have several concepts that are uniquely Johannine. For example, it keeps calling Jesus the word of God. That is particularly Johannine. That is not something that happens in the other three Gospels, um, nor is it an idea that Paul is particularly interested in, who makes up the bulk of the New Testament, right? Um, the word of God is a Johannine phrase, and it here occurs quite a few times. Similarly, the idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God is particularly Johannine, and it dominates this text. The image of this deeply surrealist lamb will occur throughout this text, although it is notable he uses a different word for lamb than the Gospels do. The image of life-giving water occurs here. That is particularly from the Gospels. And uh, the idea of Jesus as having been pierced um, is here and important here, and it is very important in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the only gospel that attests to Jesus being uh, pierced by the lance, right? Um, he has his own kind of vocabulary, the idea of conquering or being victorious, keeping the word, dwelling, sign, testimony. These are all unique features in the book of Revelations. And in fact, um, one scholar says that uh, one in eight words in the book of Revelations is unique to the book of Revelations in the whole New Testament. That's how different it is from the rest of that literature. Um, the other major, perhaps, proof that this might be John the Apostle is that everybody thought it was. Um, there, Among the church fathers, there is no greater record of attestation than for this being uh, John the Apostle. That is to say, no other book in the New Testament has so many of them saying like, yeah, obviously this is John the Apostle. Everyone knew it was by him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that was actually the major criteria for anything's inclusion in the New Testament was did this person know Jesus? Now, again, good old St. Paul Never met Jesus in life, uh, but he makes a really loud case that he still counts. Um, but that was one of the major criteria used when winnowing down the canon. Um, and if this was by the Apostle John, then it should have been included. There were many church fathers, particularly in the Eastern, among the Eastern church fathers, who argued this should be excluded 
from the canon. Um, and it is interesting to imagine a version of Christianity that never had the revelation of John. How different a text, how different a world we would live in had this violent, insane vision of Christianity simply been, like, have you read The Shepherd of Hermas? Have you read The Apocalypse of Peter, right? Like, its inclusion did massive amounts of work for how read and misread it has been. That's sort of the is he, isn't he? But who? what do we know about this person? Well, he says his name's John. He seems to be living in Patmos. Um, that seems to be a new thing for him. What else can we say about him? We know his Greek is bad, but he knows his Hebrew and his Hebrew texts shockingly well. In fact, um, some scholars think there are as many as 1,000 allusions to the Hebrew Bible in this text. There is no better scholar of the Jewish texts in all the New Testament than whoever wrote this. He knows it backwards. He knows it forwards. He knows how the temple works. He knows the layout of the temple. He knows what the priests did in the temple. Um, and he knows his Daniel. He knows his Ezekiel. He knows his Isaiah just like off the cuff, constantly working and reworking those texts. This author was very, very Jewish in some way. He similarly is among the most conservative of the New Testament authors in terms of how Jewish Christianity should be. Um, we will see, for example, moments where he is very specific about the Christian diet in a way that, for example, Paul was not and which uh, Peter was eventually converted to agree with. Peter has a vision where God shows him this blanket covered in gross meats, like bat wings and stuff. And he's like, you can eat it all, Peter. And Peter's changes his mind. Um, this author is uh, clearly... Um, conversant with, familiar with, and almost certainly was Jewish in by birth. Um, if he didn't convert, he uh, grew up in a version of Christianity, depending on his age, right? And we'll talk about dating this text in a minute, um, that was very Jewish. Now, he expects a Gentile readership, um, and indeed most Christians by this period, and I'll talk about the date in a minute, would mostly have been Gentile converts. It's actually what makes them so vulnerable to Roman persecution is because they are no longer thought of as being a sect of Judaism. But um, this text is, as much as it is a source for many, although not as bad as some of the texts we've read before, um, anti-Semitic quotations lifted out of context, its author is very interested in preserving and working with uh, Jewish material. So what date do we give to this text? Well, John is <laughs> John is actually very refreshing amongst the uh, entries in the apocalypse genre because he doesn't claim not to be exactly who he is, right? Um, unless you think he's someone pretending to be the beloved disciple, which is not an unheard of claim, but is a weird one. Um, He's just, he, he's pretty explicit about when he's writing. Uh, so we don't have to do the thing we have to do with a lot of apocalypses, which is figure out from what it quote unquote predicts when it was actually written, right? Like if you're the kind of person who believes the apocalypse of Adam is written by Adam, this might not be, 
the podcast for you. Um, but usually with an apocalypse, like with Enoch or even with Daniel, Daniel didn't write the apocalypse of Daniel, right? In fact, the text is pretty specious about even claiming that he did. But you can use context clues within the book of Daniel to figure out, okay, that's probably... That's probably that that's probably supposed to be a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's true of pretty much every entry in the apocalypse genre. You pick some luminary from the past uh, and pretend he predicted this centuries before the things you're writing about, which are usually just now. Right. Um, the Sibylline Oracles, etc. Right. Uh, that is not the case with the Apocalypse of John. He's like, hey, guys, it's me, your buddy, John. I'm over on Patmos right now. Here's a letter to you guys. By the way, here's a vision that the spirit gave me. Um, which means that we can date pretty closely when this was written. Um, the biggest clue, and we will see this extensively when we get to it is he really hates Nero um Caesar Nero he has a lot of good reasons <laughs> for hating Nero as do pretty much any person who has ever been alive who had any contact with Nero if you know anything about him um not a nice guy there has been a lot of scholarship in the last few years to sort of unpack the degree to which Christian persecutions are over-imagined in the popular imagination. Um, the extent to which we have records of them is tricky. Um, that's not really the case with Nero. He sucked and he killed a lot of people, not just Christians, but definitely Christians. He needed someone to blame for the fire that he may or may not have orchestrated to basically bulldoze sections of Rome. Uh, and the Christians were handy and he did things like wrap them in furs so that lions would kill them, use their bodies as torches in his garden. Um, a sadist of the highest degree, uh, and uh, very clearly, spoilers, the dude whose number is 666 in this text. Um, if you spell, if you use uh, Gematria uh, to spell the name Neron Caesar, you get 666. If you drop the N and spell Nero Caesar, you get 616, which some versions of Revelations actually use instead of the number of the beast, right? Um that puts this thing post the reign of Nero, because Nero dies in this text, and there's the threat he'll come back. Um, so that's 54 to 68. That's really specific. The other thing we can date pretty certainly, because again, he doesn't lie about this, is he knows the temple was destroyed. Um, the temple is leveled by the Romans in 70 CE, uh, so we're post-70 CE. As I said, he knows a lot. The author knows a lot about the operations of the temple. So what's actually possible is that he lived in Jerusalem and then fled to Asia Minor after the Romans really started cracking down uh, and trying to break the back of um, Jewish descent, right? Which, by the way, would fit if he were the Apostle John. Um, so we're post-70 CE. He seems to be in a period of resurgent Christian persecution. We know that the Emperor Domitian uh, really insisted on the imperial cult. We'll have a lot of occasion to talk about Domitian, um, 
and we'll have a lot of occasion to talk about the imperial cults. Uh, but basically, it's the idea that the emperor is a god. Uh, the first few were quite uncomfortable with this, but by the time you get to Caligula, it's just taken as given. And um, there was actually an exemption made for Jewish people. We saw this a lot when we were dealing with the Gospels, that... Um, Within Judea, there were exemptions made by the Romans that they recognized the Jewish people were, in their minds, basically atheist. They only had one God, and that's really weird to a Roman, where you just keep adding them, right? Like, there's no reason you can't worship another God on top of the ones you already have. But that idea is, of course, anathema to... Um, uh, the Jewish way of thinking, which of course must respect that their God is a jealous God, right? Um, before 70 CE, the Christians are just another Jewish sect and they have the same exemptions. After 70 CE, Christianity is emerging as its own idea. They are no longer covered by that exemption. And it does seem they were made uh, even martyred for not um, bowing to the imperial cult. There is a specific reference to a specific dude that John talks about who he assumes the other churches know has been martyred, um, Antipas. He's like a friend of theirs. That would be a weird claim if it wasn't true, right? But the historical record for Domitian's persecutions is much spottier than Nero's. Um, but even as soon as Irenaeus, a lot of the church fathers were like, oh yeah, he wrote it towards the end of the reign of Domitian, um, which would put it, uh, this text, around 90 CE. You can go later if you want to go later. Um, it has to, of course, be written by the time the church fathers are picking the canon. Um, so we're definitely, definitely post-70, Probably in a resurgent moment, it's still possible to think of Nero as coming back. The cult of the idea that Nero, for example, fled to Parthia and will come back someday. That was a real concern people had. <laughs> um, so we're in, that, we're in that pocket. We're in that zone. And again, if you want this to be the Apostle John, you have to think about the lifetime of a normal person, unless you believe that John is the um, immortal, right? Like that was a thing that people believed, as we've talked about before, that he will live until Christ comes again. But if you believe this is John, but don't believe John is immortal, you got to put it in the lifetime of a person who was friends with Jesus, who was 33 in, well, he wasn't 33 in 33 CE, because... <laughs> We have those dates wrong, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, 90 is starting to push it. Um, so there we have it. Two more things that give us around the reign of Domitian is there's a specific line where one of the monsters says, do not touch the um, the oil or wine, the olives or the wine. That's an actual decree Domitian made, so that puts it around there. And the other clue that put it around there is... Uh, Laodicea. Um, uh, it's a, one of the churches he writes a letter to here, right? Laodicea, which is not a word I'm even used to saying. Um, but that was actually leveled by an earthquake in 60 CE. And he doesn't talk about it like it's freshly leveled. It sounds like it's doing pretty well. It sounds like it's a prosperous place. Uh, if you give it about 30 years, that's believable, right? Okay, so there's, there's the idea. Post-Temple Fall, Maybe Domitian is the most I feel comfortable risking at this point. Um, okay, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the theology behind this. Now, we're going to work that out piece by piece as we go, but what can we kind of take for granted off the top? These are kind of principles I'm hoping we'll be able to interrogate um, as we go. I've given some indication about ways that it is 
conversant with the Johannine school, right? It is, um, it thinks of Jesus as a sacrifice, right? It thinks of Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, the thing that died so we would be saved, right? That is an idea adapted from Jewish thinking, right? It's thinking about Jesus as the Passover. Um, it's also thinking about Jesus as divine, uh, Jesus can break the seals that God has sealed. That means he is, by the logic of like who's allowed to break seals, that means he is as he has the same authority as God, right? So we're in a place that we're familiar with when we're dealing with the Johannine school, which is like a high Christology. Jesus is not just some guy who has been elevated by the Father the way he was, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. He is some unique thing. He is the Word of God descended into reality. We've talked about how this is actually an idea that's pretty familiar to first century Jewish thinking, right? Like the Metatron, Enoch. This is something as adapted from Hellenism that Christianity is like the biggest survivor of, but which is an idea that was quite frequent, right? There were a lot of messianic figures in the pre- uh, temple fall period, including Jesus of Jerusalem, another Jesus, right? Um, Barabbas and all that discourse. This is in that school. Jesus is very important here. There's also some kind of spirit in operation in the world. He talks about how um, he was with the spirit when he has these visions. But there's also seven spirits, which might be the angels. I hope you like the number seven because it comes up a lot <laughs> in this book. Um also very Jewish, right? Like seven is the number of completion. It takes seven days to finish the wonder work of reality. Um, he seems to have some facility with the synoptic gospels. It feels like at various moments he has one. Um, because as we talked about, the Gospel of John doesn't have enough material to give you a real narrative of Jesus's life. He might have Luke or something like it. It's likely he is familiar. His church is certainly familiar with the Pauline letters. Paul is writing letters to these communities. It's very likely that one day, one Sunday, you're reading the Revelation of John and you're reading one of Paul's letters. They, they've circulated in the same way. This Revelation is also a doxology. It's a letter. It says, to the church of whatever, here's what I have to say to you guys. Someone would stand up and read this on the Lord's Day, a day that actually occurs for the first time in the New Testament here. He talks about celebrating the Lord's Day, um, the thing we now call Sunday, right? Like, slowly Christianity transitioned out of celebrating on the Sabbath and celebrating on Sunday instead. Um, and as I've said, he really, really, really knows the Old Testament. He is probably a Jewish... Convert is maybe a way to start thinking about a Christian like this now, um, although it might not be the way he thought of himself, right? He thinks of himself as both Jewish and Christian um, in a way that is becoming a minority, right? Christianity is becoming a Gentile community at this point. Certainly it is so here in Asia Minor. I guess the last thing to talk about before we jump into the little section of text I gave us this week is kind of... The structure, or I guess the plot, if we dare to call it a plot, <laughs> of this kooky experience we're about to have. Um, as I said, the text is almost monomaniacally obsessed with the number seven. Seven structures everything about this. It is written to the seven churches, seven letters to the seven churches that are in Asia. Um, 
It very famously then proceeds into the opening of seven seals, uh, like seals on like a, a scroll, right? Like you, you close a scroll with a wax seal and then someone with authority can open it, right? Seven seals are opened and as they're opened, various calamities occur. On the seventh seal, another seven begins as seven trumpets are blown by angels. Um, and after those seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet triggers the pouring out of seven bowls of calamities. Um, seven is the number of completion. Seven is the days in the week. It is the heavenly bodies in the sky. Uh, there's a lot of reasons seven is completeness. Similarly, sixes are numbers of incompleteness, imperfection, right? 666 is the most perfectly imperfect number. Um, 3.5s, three and a halfs occur in the text, a similarly incomplete number. Um, I'm going to give you the rest of the numberology so that when you get to one, you can be like, oh, I kind of know what that means. And you can trouble these as you go, right? It's just like useful heuristics. Um, fours tend to speak to the world, right? The four winds, uh, the four corners of the earth. It's why we have like the the imagery of four gospels is actually adapted from this and like images that correspond to fours. There's not just four gospels, right? They picked four to be in the canon, but images for those things, the eagle and the lion and the man and the ox, I think, it, yeah, the ox. <laughs> they have other meanings, but they get accrued to the Gospels. But four means worldliness. Um, twelve, twelve is an easy one, right? Uh, the people of God, the twelve tribes of Israel, and the twelve apostles, which are selected because of the twelve tribes of Israel, right? Uh, Twenty-four is similarly like twelve and twelve, right? Like both covenants, the new and the old covenant. Um and a thousand. A thousand just means a lot. So, for example, there's a moment where 144,000 people are saved. And it's like, that's really specific. But if you think about it, it's 12 times 12 times a thousand. So it's both covenants and a lot is what that number means, much more than its specificity. Um, as I said, he's packed with illusions. We're going to have to do a lot of like, oh, that's the thing from Ezekiel. Oh, that's the thing from Daniel. He loves to call things back and remix them. Um, and the last thing to point out is that this thing is not going to proceed linearly, and trying to read it linearly is going to mess you up. Um, the way to think about it is a spiral. Events are told and retold with changes and with um, added meanings. Uh, symbols are reworked, re-examined, reconsidered, and recontextualized. Something can recur from earlier in the text with a twist, with a difference, right? Um, the seven seals that turn to seven trumpets that turn to seven bowls are not in order. They're retellings of the same events. Uh, one scholar I was reading about made the interesting point that this is like the dreams of Pharaoh that Joseph interprets, right? He, he imagines seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And the next night, he dreams of seven ears of corn and then seven blasted ears of corns. It's the same vision told with different symbolisms. Similarly, we're going to get a lot of Nero and stuff and then told again, um, so let's keep an eye on that. Okay, let's just look at the 11 little verses uh, that kick this sucker off. Um, 
it will recover some of the things I've been talking about, but it'll give us some of the wacky language that is going to permeate this text. The Revelation, and I'm using as always because I find it delightful and sometimes interestingly wrong, um, the King James translation, the text that is produced in the mid-17th century by a very gay king who was very obsessed with um, getting Christianity right by golly and making it as English as possible. And as a consequence, we have the text that informed, for example, Paradise Lost and all these texts. Um, Okay, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things he saw. Notice the chain of command there, right? Um, God gives a revelation to Jesus, who gives a revelation to an angel, and that angel gives the revelation to John, a real historical person that the first readers of this probably knew, right? We're at several degrees of remove, but there's a chain of custody given to us, and there's a real, like, that's going to be... um, the hierarchy we're going to keep seeing, right? There's God the Father, and right under him is Jesus Christ, the historical person, the Word of God, who is somehow, as it says at the beginning of the Gospel of John, with God and is God, um, and then his angels, and then poor confused little Johnny. Um, And then a blessing to the person who reads this. Blessed is he that readeth, And they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. This apocalypse that it is describing is coming. Um, It does describe an end of the world. Christianity in circa 90 CE thought things were going to end really soon. Paul, the apostles, they all expected the end in their lifetimes. As I said, it was expected Jesus would come back before the beloved disciple died. Um, There's moments in the letters of Paul where he assures people, because they're getting nervous. Their friends are dying. Their loved ones are dying. When is Jesus coming back? And the whole, like, theology of, like, don't worry, he's going to bring them back to life. All of that is still in development. Um, the time is at hand, but we don't know when the hour will be, as Matthew says, right? Uh, John to the seven. This is a letter. That's unusual in an apocalypse. It was meant to circulate. Um, and by the way, we should expect some evidence of editorial fussing in this gospel as we go. It does seem to have been written by one person. The style is really consistent throughout and not very good, as I've said, Um It does not seem to have, for example, the high editorial finish we saw in the Gospel of John, which we where we could literally see seams where, for example, the last discourses were stitched into the narrative, or where the pericope adulteri, the story of the adulterous woman that we know is not supposed to be in the Gospel of John, but still gets stitched into it. Um, The Revelation of John does not have that kind of quality to it. We will, you can disagree, and I may change my mind, but my read on the Gospel of John is this is by one guy, but it's possible that it was stitched together with some little pieces or explanations later. We've seen before 
for example, how in John and in Mark, sometimes an editorial gloss gets stitched into the text. But this text is nervous about that, right? It wants you to read it carefully and wants you to keep the things that are written in it. Don't alter the text. It's obsessed with this idea of being tampered with. It has a curse at the end of it for anyone who tampers with it. Um, and you could take, I was scared of that so much when I was a kid. <laughs> um, people make mistakes when they copy texts. We've seen it before, right? The adulterer's Bible and stuff like that. Uh, Thou shalt commit adultery is a most famous mistake a monk once made while copying out the Ten Commandments. Uh, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace, this is a letter to a specific group of people at a specific time. That's important to keep in mind. If you are going to be one of these people who uh, says, oh, this is about how the world is going to end in 1988. This is about Saddam Hussein, whatever. You have to deal with the fact that this thing is really explicitly being like, hey, buddies, just across the water, I'm writing you a letter. Why would God, if he wrote a letter leave it completely unreadable for 1900 years. I guess you would have to explain that one to me. Um, it's going to be a while actually before this thing gets really off the rails. It's just going to be like a, an okay letter for a bit. Um, ba -ba -ba. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Who are the seven spirits before his throne? Maybe they correspond to the church. Or uh, if you are like me, coming out of the Catholic tradition, those are the seven archangels, the, the seven ranked right under God, um, four of whom we have stable names for, right? Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, and three who have shifty names, Um but sometimes we just get four. If you don't have the Apocrypha in your Bible, you probably haven't even heard of some of those guys, right? Um, but seven archangels is pretty standard, um, and we will see more from these boys later. Um, before, so, and from Jesus Christ, and here we get a real sense of this author's Christology, the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. That's such a great <laughs> and God bless the King James Bible for making it as metal as possible, right? Um, it's not an actually entirely unique idea. Paul uses a kind of similar idea. Jesus is the first person who ever came back. He won't be the last, right, is the idea of that. First begotten of the dead, as uh, heavy metal as it sounds, means there's going to be more of us who come back, right? Um, and Prince of the Kings of the Earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Creepy image, but it's going to keep happening. My mom at the beginning of the pandemic was like, I don't need the vaccine. I'm washed in his blood. Um, that's where this image comes from. Like, that's how with us the book of Revelation still is, right? Um, we'll have a lot of occasion to talk about the pop culture afterlife of this text. Uh, anyway, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a very standard kind of blessing uh, for the top of a letter, right? Like, hey, blessed to you guys. And then we get a phrase that is um, so familiar from various places in the New Testament. It seems to have just been a thing the Christians said. Uh, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. 
and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. <laughs> There's John. Again, that tells us kind of everything about the joy this text is going to take in the suffering inflicted on those who have been wrong and have been persecuting us all this time, right? Um, but this idea of him coming with cloud, that's in the Olivet Discourses from the Gospel of Mark. Um, uh, poor old Stephen, the first martyr, says it when he gets his shit rocked, uh, when he is crushed with rocks um, outside the temple uh, while Paul is watching. Good old Paul. Whenever something terrible happens, there he is. Um, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Our first little clue of gematria there, right? Like Alpha and Omega. Those are letters, right? We're used to hearing that phrase a lot. I mentioned the Omega code already, but it's already telling us letters and numbers are going to matter the way that the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the alphabet talk to us about beginnings and endings. I, John, who am also your brother, the compan your companion in tribulation, right? Something is going on. They're being persecuted. And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the only clue we have as to what happened to him. The sort of apocryphal narrative that he... Um, is exiled there formally is speculation, right? All we have is that he was there for the testimony of the word of God. Does that mean he's like an itinerant preacher who is off to, Pat, uh, to Patmos to talk to people about Jesus there? Or was he indeed hiding out there? Is he a refugee there from people who are persecuting him? Or was he formally by the governor sent there? Uh, rather than being executed, he was exiled. Um, who knows? You can just interpret that as you will. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Two concepts there that are really interesting and tell us a lot about early Christianity. First is the Lord's day. Um, Jesus comes back on the Sunday, right? He rests on the Sabbath. He is dead on the Saturday. Uh, there's a weird idea that he's dead for three days. He dies on Friday and comes back on Sunday. He's gone for like 36 hours. Uh, well, he's harrowing hell and, you know, fetching Moses and Adam out of hell and crushing Satan. My favorite depictions of the harrowing are when Satan is like Looney Tunes crushed like um, Wiley Coyote under the door. <laughs> Google the harrowing of hell and you will see that Satan is frequently literally smushed underneath hell's door as Satan, as Jesus kicks it down to fetch all the blessed dead. Um, anyway, Jesus comes back on the Sunday. And if you're Jewish, it's very handy, if you're a Jewish Christian, to respect the Sabbath and then celebrate with your fellow Christians on the Sunday. That's how Christianity slowly migrated into Sunday being the day of rest, because like there were still Jewish people respecting the Sabbath. Um, uh, he is here calling it the Lord's Day. This is actually the first record of that usage ever. Of course, a good Christian isn't going to call it Sunday. That's a pagan idea. Um, and he was in the spirit. Uh, there it seems to have been a real um, ecstatic, charismatic dimension to early Christianity where people would speak out of the spirit, as they said. Um it's still a part of like some, you know, tent revival evangelical movements, right? People suddenly speak in tongues and stuff. Um, 
obviously that's a dangerous idea as ideas like magisteria come into play for Catholicism. I grew up in the Catholic church where speaking in tongues in church was not a thing we did. Um, but it is a thing in some churches and it seems to have been one in the early church, right? Like after Pentecost and everything, the idea ecstatically speaking, even prophesying like this is not unusual. He seems to be describing exactly this kind of thing in this moment. It is revealed to him in a state of religious mania, in a state of mystical experience. Um, and he has this, this vision, which is going to occupy the rest of this text. I heard behind me a great voice as, as, as a trumpet saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, first and last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia again, all of these are within travel distance of each other in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right, next time we're going to talk about some of these letters. Till then, oh, I'm about to do the mailbag over on Patreon. We had a lot of commentary this week. I'm going to be digging into all of that. I hope you're all joining me over there. Um... Uh, so check it out, uh, patreon.com slash Mia Koopa. You can also check out the Paradise Lost episodes, the Gospel of Mark episodes, the Gospel of John, the Letters of John, all that good stuff. If any of the things I've been talking about have been like, what are you talking about? It's all over there. Um, either way, uh, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.